We have been going through um, a series that was sort of impromptu. I hadn't really planned it, but it became a series. And we were talking about the contemplatives and uh, those in the Christian tradition who have lived by the contemplative way of life. And I'm seeing some new faces here. So if there's anyone here for the first time, we are a church that believes in the contemplative way because when you look at Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, you see that he was a contemplative. What do we mean by a contemplative? A contemplative is someone who approaches God through silence, solitude, through nonverbal prayer, realizes that we can't understand God, we can't apprehend Him rationally in a logical manner. And so the only way that we can really connect with God is when we put those thoughts aside and just connect with him spirit to spirit. There have been contemplatives from the earliest times of Christianity. And of course, Jesus, when he went to pray off by himself, when he told us how to pray to go into our inner closet, he was telling us the same techniques and showing us the same techniques and had that connection, that intimate connection with his father that went beyond the subject-object sort of rational view. And so we here have been teaching that and practicing that for nearly 12 years. And we thought it would be a good idea to take a look at how Christians have done this for the last 2,000 years. Because I'll tell you what, the mind rebels at contemplative practice. We want to understand. We want to put edges around things. We want to compare and contrast, say that this is this and not that. We want to draw logical lines from premise to conclusion. All those things the infinite God resists. And so it is difficult for us to get our minds around it. And even when we think we understand the concepts, it doesn't change anything until we can relax enough to be able to actually enter into that kind of space, that kind of journey with God. And so we've been looking at different contemplatives on Wednesday night. We've been talking here about it, trying to take this thing and turn it around and look at it from as many sides and facets as possible in order to try to get a deeper connection with this, to embrace it more with our minds so that we can actually risk starting the journey ourselves. So as we were going through all of this, I happened upon an unexpected sort of expression of the contemplative way in a movie. And I'm going to do something I normally don't hear. I want to take some scenes from this movie and break them down and see how it may inform us a little bit more about what it is that we're trying to do here. And the movie was Jackie, and I don't know if any of you have seen it. Um, I was flipping channels, and I landed on it. I'd seen the title before, and it wasn't really calling to me. You know, It wasn't an action flick or anything like that. So I really wasn't too interested in it. But I was captured at the very beginning with the scene there, and it just kind of pulled me through. And if, for those of you who don't know, it's a story of Jacqueline Kennedy in the first seven days following the assassination. And, of course, it's all told in flashback, and it's a very rich and layered story. But for those, I mean, we all know what happened on uh, November 22nd, 1963, when uh, JFK was assassinated. And we know that Jackie was sitting in the car with him. And what we don't know about Jackie maybe so much is how she got there into that car. You know, because she was born in 1939. She was only 31 years old when JFK was inaugurated. 
And she was the son of a wealthy family, uh, a stockbroker who survived the crash of 29. And um, when she was born in 1929, did I say 39? 29. And, uh, and then she was educated well at, at uh, George Washington University. She got a great degree. She was working as a photojournalist. And then she met JFK at a dinner party in 1952. And the year later, they were married. And everything changed. Everything about her life changed from that point on. To suddenly become a part of the Kennedy clan, the Kennedy family, thrust her into a limelight. And, of course, immediately after their marriage, she ran for Senate and won. And then by 1960, he was running for president, and he won. And in the midst of all that craziness, all of that turning and and changing that she was trying to do as she was getting adjusted to this new life, she got pregnant five times. The first time was a miscarriage. The second time, Carolyn was born. The third time, the child was stillborn and and never even got out of the womb. And she gave birth to to John Jr., what was it, two weeks before the inauguration in 1960? So when you think about that, and then last, she gave birth to a son named Patrick who only lived 36 hours because of a birth defect. He died in August of 1963, three months before the assassination. So if you just kind of try to put yourself in this young 31-year-old woman's mind, She has been through this ringer for the last 10-plus years. All of this loss, the loss of these two children, the miscarriage. A husband who was never really there. When she was pregnant, he was on the campaign trail. When she was giving birth, he wasn't there, typically. Of course, back in the 50s, men didn't get to be there anyway, right? They didn't wear the booties and the hats and all that kind of stuff. But we also know, with retrospect and looking at history, we know that JFK strayed from his marriage in a serial sort of way, was hyper-focused on the presidency. She was alone a lot of the time. And then when she has, she gives birth to this final boy, and, and he only lives 36 hours, she goes into a total depression and a total tailspin. But ironically, it was in those last three months before the assassination, because of Patrick's death, that historians tell us and biographers tell us their marriage really found a resurgence. Their marriage found a connection that maybe they had never had before. And then Dallas. And then Dealey Plaza. And then she's sitting next to him when her husband was murdered. Their cheeks basically touching when that second bullet hit. She showered in his blood. She showered in all of this gore. How in the world is she supposed to come out of that? Be gracious to the Johnsons as they take the oath of office. Figure out how she's going to tell her two small children that their father is not coming home and that they're going to have to be a family without him. Plan the funeral. Do everything that she was supposed to Pack up the White House because she had to move out of there on her own. There was just so many things in this whirlwind, in this maelstrom, this first week after the assassination. What was going on? She was falling apart, as you would imagine. Her brother-in-law, Bobby Kennedy, suggested that she see a priest. And so she did. Uh, they were all Catholic. She was actually the youngest woman, the youngest first lady, uh, ever in the, uh, I'm sorry, she was the second youngest first lady as, at 31. You know who the first youngest was? Frances Cleveland in 1868. She was 21. 
You get that for free. That's just, that has nothing to do with anything. I just thought I'd throw it out there. So here she is, this young woman, and she's trying to cope with all this stuff. The, the, the scenes with the priest were obviously what attracted me. There, there was a series of scenes told in flashback where she is counseling with this priest who is played by John Hurt. And I don't know if you know John Hurt. He died just last year, one of the great British actors and, and film actors. And he does this magnificent job, as, as Natalie Portman does as well. But these scenes, to me, were a classic move through grief, a classic move through all the central questions that all of us ask as human beings or should be asking as human beings. And so with that setup, what I wanted to do was kind of just go through some of these scenes and talk about them a little bit and talk about how they relate to us as we're trying to look at this contemplative way. First thing she does, in each one of these scenes, she's asking a question. It is a classic questioning. And in this first scene, she's questioning God. Who wouldn't question God at a time like this? But don't just leave this out in history. Bring it home. Make it personal. The times that you have been hit with a tragedy, the times that you have been hit with something that just takes your breath away, something that takes your your legs out from under you. Isn't it natural to question God? Listen to this exchange. Jackie says, I think God is cruel. The priest says, well, now you're getting into trouble. God is love, and God is everywhere. Was he in the bullet that killed Jack? Absolutely. Is he inside me right now? Yes, of course he is. Well, that's a funny game he's playing, hiding all the time. The fact that we don't understand him isn't funny at all, says the priest. Classic reaction. God is cruel, Anyone in deep pain knows this this sentiment, knows this feeling, to question God at this particular time. But the priest here is doing something really interesting. He's trying to guide her between two extremes and take this middle way and keep her right down this journey. One extreme is that God is distant. God is uninvolved. Take that deist approach. God wound up the universe, and now he's the absentee landlord. He is not here. He is not now. He's not involved. Therefore, he's not blamable either, but he's not involved. I always remember that song by Bette Midler, God is watching from a distance. I always hated that song. (laughs) He's not watching from a distance. No, no. But that's one extreme, okay, that he's watching from a distance. He's not involved in these things, and and you you can't blame him for any of the evil that goes on in your life or in the world. And the other side is is take this pat answer. Just create this quid pro quo, this something for something that, that takes place. I kid you not, I have heard someone say to a grieving parent at a memorial service um, when their child died that God needed another angel in heaven. So he took your child to be with him. Oh my God, you just want to kind of crawl out of your skin. There is a classic story in the Old Testament about David when he takes Bathsheba and then he has her husband killed by putting him on the front lines and the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him a story of a man who was a huge landowner, had flocks of sheep and all hundreds and hundreds of head, and then a poor man who had nothing except one little ewe lamb. And he treated her like a daughter, and they worked together, and they, they played together, and they ate together, and he treated her like, like one of his own. And when someone came to visit the rich man, he didn't want to take one of his own flocks, so he took the ewe lamb of the poor man and slaughtered it and prepared it for his guest. And David was outraged when he heard this. He says, you let me know who this person is, he will surely die. And Nathan says, it's you. This is what you have done. This is what God would do if he was taking 
because he needed another angel in heaven? How is that comforting? How does that give us any sense of who God is? Sometimes we say, well, God, when bad things happen, it's because God is either creating it to happen or allowing it to happen because he's instructing us, he's disciplining us, or he's chastising us. Now that makes a certain sense. At least it's something for something, right? It's something that we can understand why this incomprehensible thing would happen to us. But it makes God a monster. He would take my child. For those of you who have lost a child, he would take my spouse. Think of the things that happen to us in our real lives. If God did that to instruct us, to chastise us, to discipline us, we wouldn't do that to a dog. Yet God would do it to us. There's something that's more subtle, too. How about this one? You know, God knows everything. He knows the shape of everyone's lives. And so sometimes the kindest cut of all is to take the life before it goes off the rails or take the life before something bad happens. Another rational explanation for the things that we can't explain in life. But really, what about free will in a scenario like that? Don't we have a choice? Aren't we supposed to have a choice? And what about those people who aren't taken? Do they not matter in the way that God cared about taking this person out? And what if I just feel cheated out of the time that I could have had with my loved one because God decided to take him or her out early? These are the things that we have to think about when we want to flop down to one side or another. Either God is not there at all, or there's some easy, facile answer that we can give that at least gives us some semblance of understanding, those edges that we can hold on to, some sort of control. But the priest doesn't do either of those. He tries to steer down this middle way. He said, no, God is not distant. God is not absentee. God is involved. He's right here, right now. Was he in the bullet? Yes, he was in the bullet because God is in the difficult times. God is in the tragedies of our lives. He's just as present there as he is in the joys. He's just as present there as he is in the good times. Well, is he in me? Absolutely. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves. He's closer to us than we are to our next breath. And yet... There is no way to understand the nature of this involvement. How can we explain it? How can it ever make any sort of sense? And even if we try again logically to chalk up evil to free will that other people, anybody, has the choice to make and God is not to blame, that doesn't let God off the hook, does it? The buck still stops at his desk because he's allowing these things to happen. It's a deft thing that the priest is trying to do to keep her steered down this middle path. It's difficult. He's trying it. She's resisting. She's still angry. (laughs) She is not convinced at the end of that particular scene. So then it cuts to some other action. It comes back to another scene between the two of them. And she asks the second question. First she questioned God. Now she questions her own choice. Listen, Jackie, if there's a heaven... There is your God with all his empty promises. What kind of God takes a father from his two little children and my two babies, Arabella in the womb and Patrick, 39 hours on this earth, just long enough to fall in love with him? What did I do to deserve that? Nothing. Jackie, I lie awake at night and all I can think is, I wish I'd been a shop girl or a stenographer. I should have married an ordinary, lazy, ugly man. 
the priest waits a beat and he says, let me share a parable with you. Jesus once passed a blind beggar on the road and his disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was made blind so that the works of God could be revealed in him. And with that, he placed mud on the man's eyes and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did, and he came back seeing. Right now, he looks at her, you are blind. Not because you have sinned, but because you have been chosen so that the works of God may be revealed in you. Okay. I see William's face over there, yeah. It's about the same face that she had on screen. Does that sound satisfying to you? It's interesting, the script at that point says that her resentment grows. She stares at him, still unsatisfied. (laughs) And that's what you get. How could that possibly... Okay, he's building to something here, and you'll see the wisdom. But let's take a moment... Because this is a variation on the theme. All right, He should have married an ordinary, ugly, lazy man. God is still cruel. But now, what did I do to deserve this? You know, Can you relate to that? What did I do to deserve this calamity that has befallen me? Now, the story of the man born blind, if we find in John 9. Again, what he's trying to do is to navigate down a middle way here. He's navigating now between karma, basically, right? Between cause and effect. You do this, you get that. This is the way that we normally look at life. This is the way that the ancient Jews looked at life. If something befell you, it's because you did something wrong. Take a read through Job and see if that doesn't come loud and clear to you, which is probably the oldest book in the Bible. On the other side from that is complete randomness, that everything happens with with just, just a roll of the dice. Either God is completely not present or there is no God whatsoever. What did she do to deserve this? And, of course, the answer is nothing. But now he tells her, you have been chosen. First he says, you are blind. Not because you did anything wrong, but you've been chosen so that the works of God can be revealed in you. How are God's works revealed? Now we, when we read this little story, this pericope in John 9, we are focused on the miracle, the miraculous restoring of sight. Those are the works of God that we think are being revealed. But there's a whole lot more to the story than just that. If you take a look, probably up in the screen, because Brandon is always right with it, or you can look in your, in your outlines, what I want to do is read the back end of the story, because I think this is where our answer is going to lie. Because think about it. The blind man had a miracle performed for him. He was chosen so that the works of God may be revealed. Where was the miracle in Jackie's life? Where is a miracle in your life? Did a miracle occur when you had to go through the same type of suffering? You know, we've all suffered. Some of you have suffered more than the man born blind. Some of you have suffered more than Jackie. People have. And they didn't get a miracle to prove that the works of God were revealed in their suffering. So what is it that we can apply here? Where is the priest going with this? John 9, starting at verse 13. This is right after the healing, right after he has come back seeing. And the people are amazed, and they see him, and they're asking him questions, and then they bring him to the Pharisees, this man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, 
Then the Pharisees who were also asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the blind man said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son? who you say was born blind. How does he now see? And the parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. Let him speak for himself. Skip to verse 24. So a second time they called back the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, that I was blind, and now I see. And so they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he says, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And the man who was formerly blind answers and says to them, and listen, well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. And then Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, And he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Okay. That is what it looks like to be completely healed. To be fully healed. Not just physically, but completely. Look at this man's poise. Look at his dignity. Look at his wisdom. Look at his boldness. Look at his ability to speak truth to power, to stand up to intimidation. Look at his ability to see truth wherever it comes, even from an unexpected place. And at that moment, to see the truth in Jesus that is presented and to engage in it. That's what healing looks like. He was chosen. Jackie is chosen. Here's that word. You know, but the truth is that we're all chosen. Right? We're all chosen by our adversity. The things that we face, the trauma, the hurt, all of those things are choosing us. Not any one more than any other. We are chosen so that the works of God may be revealed in us. You know, Jackie was pivotal in that week after the assassination. She chose poise. She chose dignity. She chose boldness. She chose to be vulnerable in the face of millions of people worldwide watching. 
She chose all those things. She stood up to an administration that did not want the kind of funeral that she thought was only the only funeral that a president should have. She did research. She modeled the funeral on the funeral of Abraham Lincoln with a horse-drawn carriage with the riderless horse behind it, everyone proceeding down the same route that they took in 1863. And they were absolutely apoplectic because they thought there were more shooters out there and there was going to be heads of state from all these foreign countries. She stood her ground said, this is the kind of funeral that we should have. Her parents, the great Kennedys, wanted him buried in Brookline. She says, absolutely not. That's no place to bury a president. She picked out the spot in Arlington Cemetery. She picked out the hill. She picked out the way that it was going to be laid out. She was the one who selected the eternal flame. It was an amazing spectacle in 1963. We hadn't seen anything like that. There was a London newspaper that reported on this, that Jackie Kennedy gave the American people something they had never had before. Majesty. Not only that, she gave the American people what they needed at that moment. There were those cynics, those naysayers that say JFK didn't deserve it. He'd only been in office two years. What had he really accomplished? Not much. And yet he gets this kind of spectacle. He gets this place of honor at Arlington. There were those that said Jackie was just grandstanding, wanted to be seen. It didn't have anything to do with either of them. What it had to do with was what the people needed. I remember, I was only seven years old, but I remember watching this procession on a little tiny black and white TV. It was aqua, you know, those kind of 50s looking aqua horrible things. This little TV watching not really understanding what was going on, but watching the procession and my mother crying. I remember that. It sticks with me after all of these years. It was what the people needed. In her poise, in her dignity, in her adamant decision to have this procession, the works of God were revealed to an entire world and especially our country. The works of God were revealed in a man born blind to the people who were listening to this exchange. God is the source of that boldness and that dignity. God is the source of the ability to stand up to intimidation and speak truth to power and to do the things that need to be done for the right reasons. She didn't realize all this, but it happened. This is where this went. There's a third question she asked. She questioned God, she questioned her own choices, and then she questioned her life. She says, I wrote a letter. She's talking to the priest again. I wrote a letter that night before we moved the casket to the Capitol. Do you know what I said? That I wanted to die. That night and every night since, I prayed to die. The priest says, I understand. Do you? I do, unless you're asking for my permission. No, I was just hoping if I walked down the street next to Jack's body, maybe someone would be kind enough to do it for me. And the priest says, in front of the whole world, a famous life, a famous death. She says, I never wanted fame. I just became a Kennedy. She wants to die. 
passively, but she wants to die. How many of us have been in that situation where it just feels so hopeless, the hurt is so bad, and you don't know how to make it stop, that you just want to die? I can remember a time in my life pacing my apartment all by myself, praying that God would take my life. I know what that feels like. I wasn't going to do it, I guess, now. But it felt so heavy at the time. The priest understands. We all do. We understand this. But he puts her back. He pushes back on her. He stands her up from romanticizing death and reminds her of what is going on here at this moment. And he sets up this final scene. And this final scene is so pivotal, I really would like you to see it. Would you go ahead and roll that, that scene for us, Brandon? Why are you really here? I needed to talk. You say that you pray every night to die. That your children have no use for you. You wish only to be with your husband. And yet, I'm not burying you today. There comes a time in man's search for meaning when one realizes that there are no answers. And when you come to that horrible, unavoidable realization, you accept it or you kill yourself. Or you simply stop searching. I have lived a blessed life. And yet every night when I climb into bed, turn off the lights, and stare into the dark. I wonder, is this all there is? You wonder? Every soul on this planet does. But then when morning comes, we all wake up and make a cup of coffee. Why do we bother? Because we do. You did this morning. You will again tomorrow. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made sure it is just enough for us. When I watch that scene, every time I watch that scene, the first thing that I am struck with is that John Hurt had pancreatic cancer. He was just weeks from his own death. I think you can see it in his performance. You see, don't you see it? Don't you feel it? For someone to come to those conclusions in their own life, to be confronted with a script that's articulating it so incredibly well, the acting between those two, I don't even know if you can call it acting, they're living that moment. It's just an amazing, an amazing moment in, in, in cinema. The first thing he asks us, why are you really here? Why are you here? See, a question like that stands us up. A question like that cuts through any of the posturing, any of the projection, any of the superficiality. A question like that cuts right to the bone and starts talking about motive, starts talking about intent, starts, starts us asking the right questions. Some decades ago when I entered uh, a monastery, it was right out of high school, and I was there for all the wrong reasons, and I didn't know it. And I was acting out and doing certain things. And then finally, my best friend in, in the postulancy, my best friend in the house, we had this moment together, kind of like that. And he just looked at me and said, why are you even here? 
It was a defining question for me because I couldn't answer it. I didn't know why I was there. To not know why you're here, why you're anywhere, means that your 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 choices are just random with respect to anywhere that you think you might want to go, with respect to any purpose that you might have as a human being. Why are you really here? That's the central question. All the scenes between the two of them have been leading here to this moment, to what he's going to try to get across to her, that he's found out there are no answers. When we ask these questions about God, when we ask these questions about our choices or about life, when we try to understand the most intimate and infinite things that our lives are built on, There are no answers in the way that we want the answers. We're not going to get them in rational ways. It's just not possible. And so, once you come to that conclusion, he says, you know, you either accept it or you kill yourself, or you simply stop asking. You simply stop asking, banging your head against the wall in the way that you have, and just start living your moments There's a huge difference. Sometimes the asking becomes a procrastination. Sometimes the asking is just a manifestation of the paralysis that we feel because we're not ready to live our lives. We just keep asking, hoping at some point all the risk of life is going to be taken away. And then we can move forward. But that moment never comes. There are no answers in the way that we want the answers. And then he tells that story. I've had a blessed life. But every time I climb into bed and I turn out the light and I stare into the dark, I ask, is this all there is? You wonder? She's incredulous. Everybody does. Every person on this planet. Haven't you wondered? I've told this story before. One time driving in to a Sunday morning with my sermon in my pouch, ready to sit here in front of you all and be some paragon of a pastor, I suppose. And I'm seeing the light coming over those eastern hills, and it's this beautiful morning, and this thought strikes me, what if this is all there is? What if when I die, I wink out of existence and there's nothing? Not a really good premise for a sermon, I'll tell you that. (laughs) But in the next moment for me was, but Jesus believed, and that's enough for me. I can move on now, you know? But you have to come to some place... I haven't even told this story to my wife, but it was one night I woke up in the middle of the night with a pain in my chest over the left side, you know, and it was going down my arm, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. You know, because I have a friend who had a heart attack in the middle of the night, you know, and I was telling I said, what if this is it? Is this all there is? There are those moments in the dark where you ask those questions. And if you're not asking those questions, then you're not testing your faith enough. You're not moving into the places we all need to move. The most mature part of our faith is to ask those questions, to have stripped away enough of the distractions that we get right down to the nut of it. Why am I here? Is this all there is? And then when you move through and you keep breathing and you get up the next morning and you make up the coffee, when you pull a squealing child into your embrace and you just feel that energy and that life and everything for that moment is perfectly okay and it's just enough for us again, you get your answer but not in the way that you expected it. You become convinced of something that you can't explain. 
You become convinced of something that you could never prove to another person. You can't even prove it to yourself. And guess what? The next time you're in the dark, you'll ask the question again. And then you get up the next morning and make up the coffee. And you start your day again. This is what the contemplative life is about. And I don't know if that sounds morbid to you. I don't know if that sounds defeatist or like a lack of faith. But I'll tell you what. This has been the most deepening, the most solidifying part of my journey. Was to come to grips with the fact that I am not going to get the answers through sheer force of will or through some sort of study or some acquisition that I can pull in that will make me know what I can't know, but that I can participate in every moment to the extent that is just enough. I wanted to just play that one more time, let it really sink in. Why are you really here? Because I needed to talk. You say that you pray every night to die, that your children have no use for you. You wish only to be with your husband. And yet, I'm not burying you today. There comes a time in man's search for meaning when one realizes that there are no answers. And when you come to that horrible, unavoidable realization, you accept it or you kill yourself. Or you simply stop searching. I have lived a blessed life. And yet, every night when I climb into bed, turn off the lights, and stare into the dark, I wonder is this all there is? You wonder? Every soul on this planet does. But then, when morning comes, we all wake up and make a cup of coffee. Why do we bother? Because we do. You did this morning. He will again tomorrow. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made sure it is just enough for us. I've heard golf described as the perfect game because it's just hard enough. It's easy enough to think that you can do it, but it's just hard enough to keep you interested. I think life is exactly the same way. When it seems like it's all too hard, when it's all too much, we can just pick up a squealing child and make up the coffee, and if we'll allow, that moment will be just enough for us. Let's pray. Father, I like the idea of resting in your infinite wisdom. That's a comforting thought. There are so many things that are going on even in our little community. The loss of Nicole that we can't explain. People with with cancer. People with family members and loved ones who are overdosing or sliding off into addiction. And we talk to them and we see this pain inside and we know that we we can't alleviate it. There's nothing we can do to take it away except to just be present with each other. Father, show us how to keep breathing through the difficult things. Show us how to celebrate the joyful times 
Show us how each moment can be just enough the way that you've designed it to be. Help us to just embrace life as it is and not as we want to try to make it to be and to find in that surrender, to find in that fearless vulnerability all the space we need to be perfectly content with each other and with you. Thank you for designing it this way. Thank you for talented people who can remind us in such an impactful way of some of these truths. Thank you for the contemplatives and the mystics of 2,000 years. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for everything that you've given us to try to get this across. Help us to let go of anything we need to let go of and embrace. Thank you for loving us, Father. Never let us forget. We can only love because you did love us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.